The scripture today is uh, from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12, and I'm reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to be with you all this morning. Um, It has been a good start to the day, hasn't it? Um, Today is a very special day for me and Wyatt and Eli. Um, Wyatt and Eli lived with me and my wife and my kids for a while. Um, And, um, you know, these footsteps right down here that are wet, um, they mean a lot to me. Because I saw the footsteps that came into my house, and they were very different than those. Um, guys, today is a good day, and this church rejoices with you. This church is happy. This church praises God with you, and I pray that it is a good day for you as well. Um, Trinity, for you, I want to thank you for your love and your support through these years while they've been here with us. Um, I want to tell you just a snippet of both of them. Wyatt has told us at times that he's wanted to travel and ride back and forth just to be a part of us. Eli has got his family watching the services on Sunday mornings. These guys love this church. They love this church dearly. And oftentimes when we get new residents at the Joy House, we're not guaranteed to know exactly what their history is with church. And sometimes they come to us not knowing anything about church. But one of the things that we try to do as a Joy House ministry is we want them to experience church. We want them to know what church is, what fellowship is. We want them to love it. We want them to appreciate it. We want them to desire it for the rest of their lives. And um, Trinity, you, the body of Christ right here at Trinity Church, I want to thank you. I want to thank you because the relationships that these boys and the girls that we have and the boys that are not here this morning, uh, they're at home with their families this morning, but the relationships that our kids have with you guys are life-changing. They're life-changing. When the body of Christ does what it's supposed to do, and these, this morning, these footprints show what the body of Christ can do. And I appreciate you very much. Me and my wife cannot do what we do. The Joy House cannot do what we do without your love and your support and your prayers. Um, you haven't noticed by now of the many 
Sundays that I've been up here with you guys. I'm a, just an emotional guy, so I apologize. Um, but I feel like the Apostle John and Third John, when he says, I have no greater joy than to see my little ones walking in the truth. Um, I have no greater joy, guys. And, and today, we'll go down in history as one of the best days the Lord has allowed me to experience in ministry and on this earth because I saw the beginning. And um, I praise Him for what He's doing in your life and will continue to do. Um, before we get to the sermon, I want to leave these guys with three quick things, and they've heard all these things before, but I want to leave these guys with three quick things, three quick thoughts of um, how to live a regret-free life. So here it is. One, be a student of God's Word. Devour it, eat it up, and live it out. Be a student of God's Word. Two, Serve God's church because the mission of the church is beautiful. And there's going to be a lot of things that you do in your life, but your service to Christ's church will be the one thing that outlasts you on this rock. And three, be unapologetically devoted to Jesus Christ. Honor Him with all that you do. And I promise that if you do those, the Bible promises you as well that your time here will end with no regrets. You have lived the life God has called you to do. So go and serve your king. Um, <laughs> with that list, I thought about including the fourth one, which is the number one rule at the joy house. Y'all remember what it is? Don't do anything stupid. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So uh, rule 1A is if you do do something stupid, come and tell me real quick so we can fix it. Um, <laughs> But um, yes, don't remember if you uh, if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes, right? <laughs> um, so yes, and I guess you can include that on the list as well. Um, my family loves you guys. This church loves you guys, and um, thank you for allowing us to be a part of your journey. Um, Thank you for allowing the Holy Spirit to be at work in your heart. Church, let's pray. Holy Father, this morning has been wonderful. It has been good. We have seen you at work. And Lord, I praise you that I've been able to see these boys at work for a long time. Um, I've been able to see your handiwork in their lives and in their hearts. And God, I give you the honor and the glory for this. God, as we turn to your, your scripture this morning, to your word this morning, I pray that you turn our hearts, that Lord, if there is something that we hear uh, from you this morning that pricks us and that takes us in a direction, Lord, I pray that we don't resist that, but Father, I pray that you are at work in us. May we submit to your word. Father, calm my heart and allow me to speak freely. Lord, it's in your precious name, your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, so I have loved this sermon series that we've been going through. It's been great, right? So the signs of the passion. And oftentimes when we read the Bible, we see all these tales, these moral tales as disconnected, right? Uh, Sunday school has done a great job of teaching us about David and Goliath. 
But often, we don't take the time that's needed to see how these stories point us back to Christ. How are they meant to reveal our need of the promised Messiah? And the easy thing for us to do, right, is to make ourselves the central theme of these stories. We insert ourselves into these stories to find certain meanings in them. But if we take the time to see this, we will see how every word of the Old Testament directs us to, it points us to the coming Christ. And Christ is the central theme of the entire Bible. That's the main point of this whole sermon series. We heard a couple weeks ago from Jeff, and he showed us how Genesis 3 points us to the coming Messiah. He told us about Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, how it points us to the Messiah. And this last week, we looked at Isaiah 53 and Exodus 22 and how it points us to Christ. And so this week, we're going to be looking how at the promised Messiah in Zechariah. And we're looking in a book that doesn't get a whole lot of attention from us. And one of the reasons why this book doesn't get a whole lot of attention from us is just because it's a difficult book to read and grasp. It's got a lot of apocalyptic literature in it, and so it's just harder to understand. But here's something really, really important that we need to know about the book of Zechariah early on. Besides Isaiah, the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament Besides Isaiah, the book of Zechariah has more to say about the coming Messiah than any other Old Testament book. So Zechariah has more to say than any other Old Testament book besides Isaiah. And so I'd say that that makes Zechariah a pretty important book for us, right? And Zechariah's prophecies, they weren't just general, just thrown out there. We try and make them fit. No, right? What Zechariah said, they were shockingly, these prophecies were shockingly specific. So we're going to look at three real quick this morning. Zechariah 12.10, it tells us that the Messiah would be pierced. Zechariah 12.10 tells us that the Messiah would be pierced. The second one we're going to look at is Zechariah 11.12-13. It tells us of the 30 pieces of silver that Judas would use to betray Christ. Zechariah got the number of pieces of silver right around 500 years before Christ even came to earth. And not only did Zechariah get the number of pieces of silver right, Zechariah tells us in 11.13, Zechariah 11.13, that the 30 pieces of silver would be thrown down. And not only did he get the number of pieces of silver right, and not only did he tell us that these bag of silver would be thrown down, he also told us exactly where they would be thrown down. Zechariah 11.13 says it would be thrown down in the house of the Lord. Then we go to Matthew 27.5, and it tells us that Judas threw the money into the temple. And finally, the third we're going to be looking at our text today is Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah prophesies that Christ would ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey. And Zechariah tells us how the Passion Week would start for the Messiah, and it would be on the back of a donkey. These prophecies are precise, written more than 500 years before they would even happen. The book of Zechariah should be very important to us as believers. And last year on Palm Sunday, I had the opportunity to preach to you then as well, and we spent a lot of time looking at Matthew 21, specifically verses 1 through 11, and we talked about how Palm Sunday is very important in Scripture, and it is. We know, we know that all of Scripture 
is very, very important to us, right? But there are some things in Scripture that it seems like the author puts in with bright, blinking neon lights, as if to say, guys, you can't miss this. This right here, this is vital, vital to my story. And the triumphant entry of Christ is one of these bright, blinking neon sign moments. We can't miss this. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell about the Passion Week from their point of view, how they saw things. And while these versions don't contradict, the authors did personalize their book. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all made decisions about what to include, what not to include, what would be helpful for their account, what would maybe potentially be distracting. And based on those things, they wrote their book. All four of the gospel writers, all four of them decided to include Christ's triumphal entry. And and, and this is significant, guys, because up to this point in Christ's life, this is only the second event that was recorded by all four gospel writers at the same time. You all know what the first was? First was the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only other up to this point in Christ's life that was recorded by all four. And so all four of the gospel writers concurred. The triumphal entry of Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, this must be a part of my story. The people, God's people, must know about this. And now in both Matthew and John, in their account of what happened, their text cite our text, uh, Zechariah 9.9, as proof that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So we're going to look at this. John 12.14, John 12.14 says this, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, and then he quotes Zechariah 9.9. So John says here, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, and he quotes Zechariah 9.9. Matthew 21.4, it says this. So Matthew kind of tells a quick little story right here about how Jesus procured, got the donkey. And then he says, this, the getting of the donkey, took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, and then he quotes Zechariah 9.9. This passage from Zechariah 9.9 is vitally important for us to know. Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is so significant that if it had not happened, Jesus would not have fit the requirements to be the promised Messiah. Matthew and John are telling us that it did in fact happen, and therefore Jesus Christ is the legitimate promised King. Jesus is the one that Zechariah 9.9 is talking about. Now, you just heard me use the word legitimate a second ago. Now, follow me to, if you're still there, Zechariah 9.9, and allow me to show you why I feel like this is the right word to use. Now, in my study, I use a lot of different translations. It's kind of helped me out. And I think it's important for us to do our best to get to the author's original intended meaning to us, right? And one of the ways that I like to do this is just looking at multiple translations. And I read every day from the English Standard Version. The English Standard Version is the one that I like. I love it. Uh, ESV. But there's a newer translation that is new to me. It's new to me. uh, Called the Net Bible. And the Net Bible is the New English Translation. And I use this version as reference sometimes. The Net Bible was a project by three Dallas Theological Seminary uh, professors. That's the same school that Jeff and Jason graduated from. 
And um, so while I'm not intending to give you a full endorsement of the Net Bible, the New English Translation, um, I am saying that at times when I look at it, it helps me kind of get a fuller picture of what a familiar passage, at least to me, is trying to say. And so here's Zechariah 9.9 from the English Standard Version. The English Standard Version says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I want you to specifically look at three words or phrases here. It says righteous, having salvation, and humble. Now let's read the, this verse from the Net Translation. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. On a donkey, the foal of a female donkey. And for those of you that are taking notes this morning, this is the outline of the message. Jesus is the victorious king, legitimate king. Jesus is the victorious king, and Jesus is the humble king. Legitimate, victorious, and humble. Now let's look at how Jesus is the legitimate king. And I love this word, by the way. In most translations, it's translated as righteous. But in Hebrew, the word Sadiq, it can, actually, it can actually mean legitimate. And I believe in this passage, it does. And you know, I've worked with teenagers for a long time. And uh, one of the hardest things about teenagers is staying up to date with all their vocabulary. Right, Miss Robin? Um, slang and how they use words, it's constantly changing. And so right now, if you came into my house, you could hear uh, maybe one of the guys say, oh, that's legit. That's legit. You could hear one of the boys look at uh, Kristen and say, Kristen, what's for dinner tonight? Uh, corn dog casserole. Oh, that's legit. That's legit. And by the way, corn dog casserole is legit. Right, boys? It's good. It is really good. <laughs> um, it's a real thing, by the way. I didn't know about it until I came to the Joy House, and it is pretty good. Um, you could hear one of my boys see a car passing by that they think is cool and just say, oh, did y'all see that car? That thing was legit. That thing was legit. Now, you see, they, they, these teenagers, they think they're innovative. They think they made this word up. But I was around and knew the real meaning of the word legit, right? That's right. Mr. Nick had parachute pants. You remember this guy? MC Hammer, right? Too legit, too legit to quit, right? Um, believe it or not, I did have parachute pants, and no, I do not have a picture, so I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry for that visual, Kristen. Um, but my boys, when they use this word legit, they mean something that is awesome or great or cool. But when Zachariah used this word, he meant something far more, far more than just cool or awesome or great. And it does mean those things here. But Zachariah uses this word legitimate to say to his reader this, every criteria to be the Messiah, every legal requirement, every genealogical requirement, every moral requirement, every Old Testament prophecy, every promise, they will all be fully complete in the one who comes to you riding on a donkey. He will be the only legitimate king. 
And Matthew knew that this was what Zechariah was saying so long ago. And this is why we looked at this verse just a second ago, Matthew 21, 4 through 5. It says this, The getting of the donkey took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Say to to the daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding a donkey. Matthew is saying right here that all this secures Jesus' legitimacy. Matthew's entire intention for his book was to explain to us, explain to his readers, that Christ was the rightful heir to the throne of David and the promised one to Abraham in Genesis 12. Improving this was Matthew's mission and aim from the very beginning of his book. Let's look at Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, David, Abraham, Jesus Christ. What Matthew is doing right here is he is connecting the dots for us. He's connecting the dots all the way back from the beginning, all the way to Jesus Christ, and showing his legitimacy as king. And the word king or kingdom is used 72 times in the book of Matthew. And that is way more than it's used in any other New Testament book. Zechariah is telling us that Jesus is the legitimate king. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the legitimate king. And church, do you know what that means? Do you know what that means for us? It means that you have no other legitimate king. Christ is it. Christ is it. We are to serve him and him alone, and he alone is worthy of our full allegiance. Christians, we are monarchists. We bow to only one king. You know, I've heard people ask this question before, uh, who is sitting on the throne of your heart? And I understand the intention behind this, but the truth is, there is no throne in my heart. There is only one throne, and that's the one that Jesus sits on, and that one is far too big than to fit inside of my heart. Jesus is not just my personal king, and he's not just your personal king. He is the righteous and legitimate king over all eternity and over all things. Jesus isn't king because I make him one. He is king. And it's my job and it's your job to bow down and surrender our all to him. Church, listen, you have no other legitimate king to serve. Not yourself, not your money, not your happiness, not your peace, not your safety, not your security, not your car, not your job, not even your spouse or your kids. Dear believer this morning, who are you serving? Who has your allegiance? Because Christ in Scripture, is the only legitimate king. Not only do we see that Christ is the only legitimate king, but Zechariah also tells us that Jesus is the victorious king. The victorious king. Having salvation is he, is how the ESV puts it. In Trinity, Jesus is the victorious king, right? And if you are here this morning and you're a saved man or woman and you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have experienced this victory. And God in His wisdom, He's ordered us to celebrate Christ's victory together with Him through communion and through baptism and church. What we saw this morning with Wyatt and Eli was just a visible representation of Christ's victory in His world. 
And so let us be reminded of what Paul says in Colossians 2, 12-15. This is Colossians 2, 12-15. Guys, this is great. So listen to this closely. Having been buried with Him in baptism, having been buried with Him in baptism, which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. By triumphing over them in Him. Trinity, Christ is victorious. Christ has brought us salvation. Now let's look back at Zechariah 9, and we're going to look at verse 11. So this is just two verses after our main text this morning. So verse 11, it says this, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit or hopelessness here. Here in Zechariah 9.11, the prophet Zechariah tells us that freedom and victory can only come through the blood of his covenant. Let's look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 12 through 13. And I believe that Ephesians 2, 12 through 13, what Paul is doing, and a lot of times what, New, what the New Testament authors do is they're trying to connect dots for us, right? So I believe that this is what's happening here. So Ephesians 2, 12 through 13 says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope, waterless pit, having no hope and without God in the world, but now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you were here last week, we heard a lot about that from Pastor Jeff. But it's Jesus' blood who is victorious. That is the victory. In church, we sing about this, don't we? We sing about it this morning. Victory in Jesus I heard an old, old story how the Savior came from glory, how He gave His life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about His groaning and His precious blood's atoning. Then I repented of my sin and won the victory, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and He bought me with His redeeming blood. And church, do you know why that song was written? Do you know why this song was written? It's written because you and I need to remind ourselves that victory is only found in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Because if we don't remind ourselves that true victory is found in Christ, we will search and search and search and search and search for it in all the wrong places. People in our world, maybe some people here, are desperately searching for victory in their lives. And recently, our state has been grieving from these horrific murders of the massage parlors and spas, and um, eight people were murdered by a 21-year-old man named Robert Long. And every part of this story has just been so sad to me. Um, 
My heart grieves for these families that have lost a loved one. And these murders are pure evil, unacceptable, and unnecessary. Now, our media has spent a lot of time and effort trying to figure out the motivation for these murders. And some have said that they are racially motivated, and I I don't know. But what I do know is that Long allegedly told the police that he was a sex addict. And these places were outlets for his sin. And he supposedly wanted to eliminate these temptations. Church, Long was the son of a youth minister. Long's friends described him as big into religion. And that's a quote. In his yearbook just a few few years ago, Long said that he felt like God was calling him to be a church leader. Long said that in his yearbook, he said that he wanted to reach his high school campus with the gospel. Long was baptized in a church only 30 miles away from us, almost three years ago exactly to the day. So why do I, why do I tell you this about Robert Long? Because, church, this is how ugly and destructive sin can be. And if you and I leave it unchecked in our hearts, there is no telling where we will end up. If you and I leave sin unchecked in our hearts, there is no telling where we will be. And I'm not sure who said this, but man, isn't it true? Um, This quote, sin will take you further than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Dear Christian, there is victory in the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't despair. Don't grow weary. Turn to Christ, the founder and perfecter of your faith. He alone is victorious. You will find it no other place. You will find victory no other place other than in Christ. Church, we need to look at the victory that came for us in Zechariah 9.10. Zechariah 9.10, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Here in this passage, Zechariah says, I will destroy He says the Messiah will destroy the chariots. He will get rid of the war horses. He will break the bow used for battle. And he will reign forever and everywhere. From sea to sea and from the end of the earth to the end of the earth, he will reign. He will reign victorious. And Trinity Church, Christ's victory was complete on the cross and it is still complete today for us. Christ is victorious. And maybe you're here today and you're struggling with something. Maybe you're struggling to find victory and peace over an area of your life. My encouragement to you, the Bible, the Scripture's encouragement to you is turn to Christ. He alone is victorious, and He alone can save us. Not only is Jesus the legitimate King, and not only is Jesus the victorious King, finally we see in this passage that He is the humble King. 
So let's look back at Zechariah 9.9, our main passage. It says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. And as I said earlier, the book of Zechariah is just difficult for us to fully grasp. But chapter 9 seems to be like a fairly important chapter from us for us. And this chapter is kind of broken into two halves. You have Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, and then you have Zechariah 9, 9 through 17. And in Zechariah 9, 1 through 8, Zechariah tells us of this warrior that's coming to destroy the, the enemies of Israel. In verses 1 through 8, we hear that God is going to bring judgment upon the nations who oppress his people. And Zechariah 9, the verses 1 through 8, lists nine different cities that will be destroyed. And what's fascinating in this, I believe it is, is that many Bible scholars and historians actually believe what Zechariah is prophesying right here is actually the coming of Alexander the Great. And in the first part of chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, we see this Grecian warrior-like, king-like figure that comes and just destroys, decimates everything in his past in his path. Undoubtedly, he's riding this war horse that's fit for battle. And then, in Zechariah 9, 9 through 17, there's a shift. And we're told of this humble king bringing salvation that is riding on a donkey. And church, this is amazing. In verse 11, we learn that this humble king is coming not to slay anyone else, But in verse 11, he's actually coming to shed his own blood to bring us peace. This humble king is no other than God himself. And the contrast here is just incredible. We have this Alexander the Great-like figure who is hungry for war, hungry for conquest. He comes in riding a war horse. And then God himself comes in riding a donkey. How mind-blowing is this to think about this, that the God over everything is coming to sacrifice his own blood for his people, riding a donkey. This is the Son of God. This is true humility. And church, isn't it true that we have, in our society and in our culture, we have a major problem with humility, being humble. The problem is we think we're experts at it. We're not. In our culture today, we are proud about how humble we are. Do you think about that? We're proud about how humble we are. We want to show off our humility, and we parade around our humility to make sure that everyone knows where we stand on things. You may have heard about this phrase, virtue signaling. And I am convinced that virtue signaling is a major issue in our world today. And it's a major issue in our churches. Virtue signaling can be defined as this, the action or practice of publicly expressing opinions or sentiments intended to demonstrate one's good character or the moral correctness of one's position on a particular issue. The issue here is that it's intended. What we say is intended to demonstrate how good we are. We virtue signal when we say things that are intended to make the other person know how good we are. 
And sometimes the implication is how bad they are or other people that don't agree with us. There are so many issues out there in our world where this may come up. This is just a few. Immigration, pro-life, Black Lives Matter, gender issues, taxes, the coronavirus response, political issues. Who to vote for? Who not to vote for? When to vote? The issues and sides here are countless. And it's exhausting, isn't it? This is just a part of the world that we live in now, right? And this is even big for big businesses. Have y'all noticed TV commercials that have started doing this? Jason and I talked about um, commercials during the Super Bowl and how they had nothing to do with their product. So you'll watch this lengthy commercial talking about some social issue, and then at the bitter end, it winds up being a car commercial or something, right? And it's done as if to say, buy our car because we're on the moral side of things. We're on the right side of things. Or don't buy a car from the company that isn't paying millions to do this kind of commercial, right? Because we're the moral ones. We're better than those guys. Buy a car from us. And social media is full of conversations flooded with people showing off how virtuous they are. And virtue, virtue signaling is the new humble brag, right? But the problem is, church, it is dangerous. It is dangerous. It's about magnifying our own good deeds while also magnifying others' shameful deeds. It's dangerous because it is pride masquerading and masked as humility. In the political climate and social justice issues alone, they fuel our need to make sure that others know exactly where we stand on things. It's hard out there to have conversations, isn't it? We live in a society where it is normal to argue about who is more morally superior. And all these endless arguments, they just rage and rage because everyone is operating off of their own moral standard of who is right and who is Everyone's doing what they feel is right in their own eyes. And how many conversations do we have today that start off with, well, what I think about it is this, or, well, my opinion is this. And church, it is time that we remember that there is only one ultimate moral standard, and it's God's character that's revealed to us through his word. And church, we need to start having more conversations that start with, well, God's word says, rather than, well, what I think is, or my opinion is. And let me show you a passage that really gets to the core of this issue in Luke 18. Luke 18, 9 through 14. In this passage, Jesus is going to tell a parable about a tax collector and Pharisee. And he sets up this passage in Luke, or Luke 9, uh, verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. And Luke actually gives this little commentary here, which is very rare for parables. But the commentary is that he is going to tell us who this parable is specifically for. So who is it specifically for? And here's what verse 9 says. He also told this this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the purpose of this parable. He told this 
parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. How fitting is this parable then for us today? Here's the parable, starting in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, and one, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven and beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee was proud of his morality. And he was proud of the fact that he was on the right side of things. Church, in in this parable, it forces us to ask the question, who are we in this parable? Are we the Pharisee or are we the tax collector? So you may be wondering, how does all this virtue signaling and tax collector and and Pharisee have anything to do with Jesus riding in on a donkey? Church, because true humility at its core, true genuine humility at its core has its roots in the character of God. Christ is our example. And we wouldn't even know what humility is if it hadn't been revealed to us in Scripture. Christ is the example of humility. He himself shows it to us. And so here in the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ going into Jerusalem, we see the story of all the people shouting for Jesus, right? The whole city is seemingly stirred. People are laying down their clothing. We're told about people laying down palm branches for him as he comes in. They're singing songs, shouting Hosanna. Jesus in this moment is being celebrated as king. And for the first time, it seems like Jesus is receiving the recognition that he so deserves. Do you remember what Jesus was doing? What was Jesus doing during all this fanfare surrounding him? Luke 19 tells us that Jesus was weeping over the city. It tells us that Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem. He was weeping over a people that would come to reject his truth. And church, when was the last time that we wept over the lost in our community? When was the last time that we wept over the godlessness that we see in our country today? Church, my kids, the kids in this youth group, the younger people, they need your prayers. Not only do they need your prayers, they need your action. They need the greatest gift that you can give to the generation below you is to live out Scripture to its fullest. Live it out. When was the last time we were humbled in spirit and wept for a family member or a friend or a neighbor that was living in total rebellion to God? When was the last time we wept over someone who needed to submit their lives 
to this humble king because Christ is our example and we must follow in his footsteps. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Church, our Savior, the King of the universe, the King who created and sustains all life, He came to us riding a donkey. I mean, think about it. He came to us wretched and prideful sinners. He came to shed His blood for us. And if you're listening this morning or watching online, let me ask you, how has this legitimate king changed your life? How has this victorious king altered your eternity? And how has this humble king transformed your heart? Church, listen, Zechariah the prophet, he told us to look forward to Christ. He told us to look forward to the Christ that was coming. And he said, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is legitimate and victorious and humble and riding on a donkey. And church, all of Scripture today, all of Scripture, including the Matthew passages that we looked at, all of Scripture tells us to look back at Jesus and rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly. Shout and look that your King has come to you. He is still legitimate. He is still victorious. And He is still humble. And yes, He rode in on a donkey. Our promised King, the victorious King, the one that you can place your faith in and, 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 and repent of your sins and come to Him, He is still victorious. And He alone can save you today. He is good, and He still is in the business of saving lives. And if there's someone here today that doesn't know this humble and victorious and legitimate King, I pray that you ask questions. Jeff, Jason, and I are here. The elders are here. We'd love to talk with you. This King, found in Zechariah 9, is the only one worthy Turn your hearts to Him today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for Scripture that pulls everything together. We thank You for connecting the dots for us. Because Lord, I know for me, I, I just wouldn't connect them on my own. But Father, You've given us Your full, complete Word. And it is supernatural. This isn't just a book. This is a book that shows us and reveals to us the God over everything. All of eternity is contained within a book. Father, your book, your word, it tells us that your son is legitimate, he is victorious, and he came to us humbly to shed his blood for us. Father, my prayer is that if there is someone here that does not know the gift of your Son, may today be the day. Lord, we love you. It's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen.